Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. Public transit around the world is struggling with ridership losses resulting from COVID-19. Public transit has been essential to the functioning of cities and is itself dependent on commuter travel for both financial and political support. But post-COVID working patterns have created a new normal for public transportation. To learn about the challenges facing a major commuter rail system and how that rail system is meeting them, we're joined by Jim Darwinsky, who is CEO and Executive Director of METRA, the commuter rail system serving the Chicago metropolitan area. Jim came up through the mechanical side of the transportation industry, starting out as an electrician on nuclear submarines, working as a locomotive electrician for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, moving to and moving up at METRA to chief mechanical officer and finally becoming CEO in 2017. Jim, I'm really happy to talk to you this morning. Well, thank you. So first, tell us about METRA. What's, your, what's the nature of your market, your, your, your services, the, the scale and scope? Yeah, so METRA is the uh, fourth largest commuter railroad by uh, trips and the largest commuter railroad in the country by actual route miles. Um, it's a conglomeration of all the legacy systems that existed providing what used to be called suburban service. So BNSF, uh, Union Pacific, former Chicago Northwestern, Rock Island, Milwaukee Road, Norfolk Southern, and Illinois Central. You know, so now, um, as it sits calling it Metro today, we look at it as 11 different lines. That's a complicated system. It's a radial system uh, starting in, in the center of the city and spreading itself quite far from downtown. Yes, absolutely. Our, our farthest line is 65 and a half miles out to Harvard. Um, if you take the actual square footage of our service area, it's 3,400 square miles larger than the state of Delaware and Rhode Island put together. Wow, that's a big system. So what, what was your experience and what is your experience uh, as a result of COVID-19? Well, the one thing that we all have learned from COVID-19 is that commuter rail, unlike some of the other modes of public transportation, had riders that had more of the ability to uh, work from home, work remotely. Um, Metra's uh, lowest day was April 9th, 2020, when we went down to 7,200 riders, or we were down 97.5% of our, of our ridership from just one month earlier. Um, we've recovered a tremendous amount in that period of time, but certainly the ridership patterns have uh, changed um, because of this uh, continued uh, work from home, remote work uh, practices that are being seen. Um, our ridership patterns are probably going to be affected permanently. So what was your, your peak daily ridership? Well, in 2020, right before the pandemic hit, we were 280,000 trips a day. And, and roughly where does it stand now? Today, on average, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're seeing a higher ridership number than Mondays and Fridays. We're at about 145 to 150,000 trips a day. So the pattern over the days of the week and the times of day have changed substantially. Absolutely. I mean, we saw prior to the pandemic a kind of a drop-off occurring on Friday. So there was already a tendency of people to um, not be utilizing the system on, on the Fridays um, 
and we saw this across the country. One of my other roles is I'm chair of Commuter Rail Coalition, so this is something I can speak to. That we saw this pattern emerging um, with a little bit of remote work, it looks like, back in 2018, 2019, only fully exacerbated by the pandemic. So how did you adapt your service when the ridership was at the lowest point? Well, we we moved pretty quick uh, with respect to uh, the country. Um, we recognized very quickly uh, the resources, the, the the funds that we need to operate the system were depleting at, at, at a rate that was uncontrollable. There was uncertainty um, when uh, there would be any relief money, if any relief money was coming. So we started very early on, and we reduced service down to what we call um, a storm schedule. So we had kind of schedules that were built in place for these massive snowstorms when the roadways couldn't uh, be cleared and people weren't really going to get to the train stations and we weren't going to run all our trains and try to cut through all the switches and you know that's where all the failures occur. So we have this this system that we ran. It's about 50% and it really kind of straight lined the railroad, less cutovers and, and just far less trains out there. So we immediately implemented that probably at the end of April in the May of 2020 to help reduce expenses. And that kind of gave us a, you know, a little shot in the arm with regard to having taken the local monies that we had and, and stretching it out. Thankfully, the federal government stepped up and gave us the, the CARES Act uh, later that year, which then gave us some certainty into 21. And has that been extended? Yeah, after the CARES Act, um, then they had the... Uh, ARPA money came out and um, the CARISA money came out. And both of those now, um, you know, throughout the country have really given all public transportation. For Metra, it gives us certainty through 25 now. Uh, we, we've literally got the ability to substitute the lost revenue from, from passengers um, into 2026, right at the beginning of 26. The other interesting thing that I think all across the country we've seen is anybody that revenues are based on sales taxes have seen a spike since the beginning of pandemic of higher than expected sales taxes. Metro is a benefactor of that as well. And that's another reason why the COVID money, you know, nobody knew how long the pandemic would last. Nobody knew if this was enough COVID money. But at the end of the day, these higher sales taxes have really made it so that that federal relief money can, you know, once again, get us all the way into 26. Otherwise, it would have probably collapsed somewhere in the 24 range. So just let me digress and take you back to the sales tax issue because it seems to me that, that that's important, that that's a reasonably reliable source of funding for all of the transit in the Chicago metropolitan area, is it not? Absolutely. It, um, you know, statutorily, um, we're required to recover 50 percent of our rev of um, our operating expenses through fare box revenue or other revenues. So, if you look at it just on the basis of a 50-50, um, right now sales taxes are clearly providing over 50 percent of our operating expenses for any of the transit systems. So, we actually have relief from the state legislator right now on the fare box recovery ratio, and we're in discussions with the uh, legislator right now on what future fare box recovery ratios should look like. But uh, without the ability to leverage the, the extraordinary taxes, uh, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in today. So, and you're looking to, well, the beginning of 26 to the end of the, the federal tranche of money. Yeah, that's that's correct. You know, and once again, the better performance either on taxes or if we have better performance on uh, budgeted um, fare box uh, numbers, I mean, that number can, again, sneak out a, a little bit. The good news is we've got a, you know, a two and a half year runway to continue to work on this. 
So the tax, the local taxes, the sales taxes are up presumably because consumer spending is is strong. That is correct. Okay, and I assume that's something that all of the transit properties, at least in Chicago, are, are keeping a close watch on. Absolutely, and you know, we're all benefiting from that. I mean, it comes into the RTA and it's distributed out through formula, but we're all benefiting from the strong sales tax right now. And how do you see service changing going forward? So when we went down to the 50%, um, we called it the COVID schedule at that time, we maintained that for uh, quite a bit of time. If you, if you look at our ridership numbers, it, it, it took a long time for us to get back to 20%. I remember watching the ridership numbers, and literally every time we had gained 1%, I'd make a big deal about it. But when we finally got back to the 20%, we started looking at putting out new schedules to start really attracting people back. One of the things Metro also did was we held a Commute with Confidence Summit where we invited the media in to talk all about all the things that people may not have known about the air filtration on the train, the exchange of air, the ionization, and, and the safety, that aspect of safety of operating the railroad. But then in April of 21, we held what's called a Return to Work Summit. We had over 1,000 participants, including some of the big heavy hitters, downtown Chicago businesses, and, and Dr. Robert Murphy of Northwestern, you know, coming in and talking about safety on the trains and then returning. And right about that time, that's when we started launching what we called back then pilot schedules. And uh, we, we hit three of our lines with these schedules that had um, – more consistent hourly service, more memorable service patterns. And nowadays, I don't call them pilots anymore. I call them the the new type schedules um, where, you know, people are, are really uh, jumping on board on the fact that it's nice to have a, uh, a schedule that I know that on the 17 and the 47, that's when the train comes to my station. Ah, okay. So it's a more of a consistent schedule through the day compared to what you were doing before, which is very focused on peak period? Yeah, absolutely. There was times where we were two, two and a half hours, depending on the lines, even more uh, gaps. So with this hourly type service, the best of our ability, this hourly type service, it's really attracting a new rider. It's attracting somebody that may go downtown for that one or two business meetings, but then they still have an ability to get home um, if that's what their work allows them to do. So just having this this more flexibility in the schedule, more certainty in the mid mid part of the day has really attracted um, a greater diversity of riders than we had before. And we can see that both in our ridership data and we can also see that in our survey data. So tell me about the surveys that you're doing. I mean, it's it's relatively straightforward, I think, to count your, your riders. But how do you know what, what they're thinking? Yeah, so in 2021, toward the middle and the end of 21, we actually uh, adapted using a little bit of technology, our marketing firm and then our media group. We put uh, QR codes right on the train cars. And then in the beginning, uh, you know, the idea was uh, trying to figure out what are the ridership patterns. Are are these new people? Are these uh, people that are returning? Are Did they move to the suburbs? Are they just um, – what what – drives them to stay on Metro. And we were using all those analytics so that we can make determinations on what to do with future schedules and what we should enhance in our marketing campaigns to attract new riders. One of the most interesting dynamics that I've still been blown away by is historically, prior to the pandemic, Metro was averaging somewhere around 10, 11, 12 percent new ridership. A new rider is somebody who's riding us less than one year. 
And so you're always going to have a churn. You're always going to have people retire, people that move, and you're always replacing those people with people that moved in or people now that uh, moved out to the suburbs and potentially are coming downtown, which is your traditional rider. Since we started doing surveys, our survey data still solidly indicates we are watching about a 20, 25% of our riders are brand new, which is huge. So what do you think is bringing them? Well, I think it's a, it's a shift. Um, there's been a, a shift to the suburbs, uh, as you know, housing markets in the suburbs, and we see this all over the country. In Community Rail Coalition, we constantly are bringing in the realtors, uh, both for the commercial side and uh, also for the residential side, and we're, we're looking at the patterns that are occurring. There's been all over the country, and Chicago's no exception, this huge market shift of people moving to the suburbs. Prices are, are, are you know, driving way up there because availability of um, supply. And we, we really do believe that there's a great opportunity to, you know, get people that may have been living in the city that now either have sprawled out looking for more room, growing a family, whatever the reason, hey, come try this. They probably used a CTA-type service. Now come try this. So we actually did a campaign back in 21 where we sent out mailings to any new residents that were out there based on the databases with a couple free tickets and some survey stuff. Um, we got some good hits on that. Uh, it wasn't like an overwhelming, like, out of, out of your way, because once again, people have to have a reason to come downtown to take advantage of that. But it certainly was at that time uh, an ability for us to reach people that maybe we wouldn't have reached had we not done the old school mailings. Interesting. So it sounds like a much more aggressive approach to marketing. Yes, absolutely. And then the cool part is nowadays, once again, with the survey data, everything electronic, and then, of course, the electronic way of tracking who use, utilizes those those tickets, um, it gives us a, a, a much broader uh, piece of data to figure out what does the future look like. And one of, one of the things that the surveys continue to tell us is they really like these new schedules. Yeah, there's going to be the occasional person that says hey, my express train at 7.31 in the morning isn't here anymore. But for every one like that, there's 10 people saying, I really like the fact that now I have nine options that, that I can really easily memorize um, throughout the course of what the morning rush hour is. And the other thing that we've seen, and we've seen this all over the country, is rush hours used to be compacted to, say, like 6.30 to 9. Rush hours are now moving all the way from 6 in the morning till 10. In the evening rush hour, you should be compacted from, say, like a 4.30 to 6. It's now getting to the point where almost 2.30 you're starting to see trains fill up. Um, we're not at the point where we've uh, expanded like half-hour service into that room, but at least at 3.30 you're starting to see these, these trains that traditionally had decent ridership, but they're, they're filling up. And what you're seeing is the traditional trains in the evening just aren't getting back to the level that they were before. So do you, do you have the, the, the capacity to handle that change in, in time patterns? Absolutely. So the, the, the beauty of a train is you can usually just add more cars. So there's, there's your capacity. So we, we're very deliberate in the way we put out schedules. Um, we're constantly lo- looking at the opportunities to add enhanced service. Express trains are something that we always want to add some more of. We know that's a great marketing tool. People don't have to take that milk run and all those stops on the way in. But the interesting thing is once you build these memory patterns and and the meets inside the middle where the infrastructure allows it all become uh, lined up, it gives you those clear opportunities to say, between this and this, now I can add one of those. And so as the ridership patterns you know, continue to evolve, we're going to continue to work on, on evolving the schedules, 
one of the challenges Metro has, like a lot of commuter agencies, is it doesn't own all of its tracks. It doesn't operate all of its tracks. So, like when we're dealing with the BN... SF and the Union Pacific, you know, you're talking about a 60-day window to to adjust schedules. You know, it's a matter of them looking at the schedules, approving the schedules, and eventually getting into the crew calling and, and lining up the crews to run additional service. So what what's good about that is it's not just a bump on a Monday that, that, that excites us. It's those patterns that we can watch. So the cases where you're dealing with the freight railroads, you're on their infrastructure, but are they also operating the trains? Yeah, so for BNSF, those are BNSF employees, um, conductors and engineers on Union Pacific. It's Union Pacific employees, it's conductors and engineers, both dispatched by the freight railroad. The track, the wayside, the signals, all of that's maintained by the freight railroad. And it's not a secret, we've been working with uh, Union Pacific for now several years to try to um, move the Union Pacific uh, employees that operate the suburban division here in Chicago over to Metro employees. And those negotiations still go on, so I foresee someday we're going to finally get all of those contracts in place. And, and those, at least on the Union Pacific line, those will be Metro employees operating those trains on Union Pacific tracks. So it sounds like that would give you the capability to make adjustments in a shorter period of time. To some extent, right? Because at the end of the day, it's really all about the dispatching. That's really the, the control point. So they have a business to run as well. Freight freight has a business to run. They are obviously part of the national supply chain, and we've seen ups and downs in that over the last year and learned a lot of lessons but um, it, it's about working together. You know, the beauty of what, what commuter does, and you've heard the term precision scheduled railroading from the freight industry, commuter was precision scheduled railroading before precision scheduled railroading was ever invented. So the beauty is once you know our schedule, then you exactly know where they have capacity to put those freights in and out of there as well. And as long as they're running on some type of schedule, we easily can work together. It's when things go bump in the night and trains get out of schedule that usually that's when, you know, unfortunately on the limited infrastructure, that's when the delays occur. And unfortunately for the passengers, we have, we have that more often than we like. Have you done any experimentation with pricing? We have. Um, in 21, uh, we started playing with the uh, monthly, uh, recognizing people weren't going to come down on the traditional numbers that we saw pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, uh, on the Venture app, we were able to see 34 was an average number of uh, rides that a monthly rider was taking, 34 trips a month. And um, that pattern's completely changed. We started really working on the price to more coincide with the, the ridership patterns. We ended up coming up with a thing called a $10 all-day pass, regardless of zone. And um, it was a great benefit the farther out you were, because we're traditionally a zone-based system, costs more to ride more. Um, but with that $10 pass, we started seeing people come back. And it was a flexibility component. I'm not going to have to invest into this 10 ride. I'm not going to invest in this monthly pass. I just need a, a pass to come in and out. Well, that thing morphed in 22 into a, well, 10 times 10. If people are coming down, if they're taking 10 trips uh, a month, and you know, two this week, three next week, two this week, three next week, if they're taking 10 trips a month, well, that became $100. So we kind of came up with the idea of the $100 Super Saver Pass. And um, it's, we still have the $10 pass, but that thing then, of course, costs another shift. It's shift uh, in the way people purchase fares. At the same time, um, CTA and PACE here in, in the Chicago region 
offered a $30 regional connect pass. And so the interesting thing is the way you access a regional connect pass is you have to have a Metro monthly pass. So as we came out with a $100 monthly pass and we're incentivizing people to try to try the system and, you know, buy a one-time ticket, you know, for all the reasons that are good for the conductor, good for the sales channel, for an extra 30 bucks, you can ride uh, PACE and CTA unlimited for the for the entire month. The adoption of that it still hasn't been that strong, but there are people out there absolutely utilizing it. But it's a, it's an interesting move in the direction of integrating the various transit services in the region. It does. It gives us a data point. It gives us some surveys, and we are still working with CT and PACE to eventually come up with an integrated system. Jim, what are Metro services going to look like a decade from now? Well, I envision a lot of different things, and, and certainly I, I tell people all the time, if you're going to speak on, on what COVID's going to look like or what, what something's going to look like, uh, you're going to be wrong, whatever you say today. So I'll fully admit what I'm going to say today. I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to be proven wrong a decade from now. But what I see is a, is a pattern that's starting to emerge, and that is where people like to have that discretionary travel. They don't want to be tied just to the rush hours. Um, you see it in the employment base where people certainly don't want to be tied downtown to a five-day-a-week job. I mean, that's going to evolve over time, and a lot of that's going to come from the business owners, of course. But what I see Metra really um, evolving into is more of this regional rail-type system, and we're working on that currently with schedules where uh, a BNSF train hits Union Station at 11 o'clock in the morning, we got to make sure that the train that's going to O'Hare didn't leave at 10 to 11. So we're building schedules so that in, in those environments where one person could, it's a two-seat trip, but they could get to another spot on the system because the schedules are built conducively to, to just walk across a platform or walk across a building and get on there. Eventually, um, as you talk about uh, Chicago, and if you just throw all the railroads on a map, it looks like a giant spider web. Um, I like to think that we'll be able to do, start taking other legs of that spider web and start connecting some of the outer spokes here and there deliberately so that there's some more options for people. And it's really it's going to boil down to where are the volumes at. You know, obviously operating a train costs a tremendous amount of money. You're not going to operate a train for just 10 people. But if we can find the abilities to partner with businesses, partner with O'Hare, partner with colleges, where we can find the, the, the density of, of um, personnel riding, then I think we have the ability to to continue to reinvent Metro in this new service pattern that's going to more look more regional, more connected. Sounds like something to watch carefully for. Uh, what I hear you talking about is integration from the point of view of fares, uh, service characteristics, and recognizing that probably travel is less radially oriented and more regionally oriented. Yes, absolutely. And then also, you know, we're, we're continuing to look in. I want to lead the nation right now um, into this uh, move from a commuter perspective in the zero to low, low emissions to zero emissions um, operations. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not like I can drive down to the local uh, store and buy a bunch of these things. They, they're really not invented yet. They're starting to be um, used a little bit in Europe. Um, so we're constantly looking at that, and I'm hoping in the next couple of months to bring something to our board on a, on a pilot basis to try some zero emissions uh, type equipment. And then as we get that out, kick the tires, get it on the road, and, and utilize it in a different nature, I envision us being able to start utilizing that for what I'm talking about, that interconnectivity with a different type of uh, a train set.
It sounds like a much more positive future than than I expected. I'll be anxious to watch what you do. And and as you move in the direction of sustainability and different energy sources, we'll need to get back to you and get a progress report. So thank you very much. I really appreciate that you're spending the time. I know it's been a busy day for you, and we look forward to watching your success. Thanks. Thank you very much, Professor. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcasts and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I. <laughs>